What's up, everybody? This is Eve with the Healthy Charleston Podcast. For those of you who don't know, I'm a physical therapist, and this podcast is dedicated to giving you the right health and fitness information that is both practical, actionable, and evidence-based. This is season two of the podcast, and we are so excited. We're going to have a little less interviewing. We're going to do some more topic-based discussions with myself and some of the made-to-move physical therapy and performance team. Maybe have some guest hosts out there. We are so excited for season two. Thank you so much for joining us and supporting us. If you have any questions for me or the crew, just search Healthy Charleston on Instagram or you can reach out to us directly at made to move pt.com that is the number two thanks so much see you soon hey everyone welcome back to the healthy charleston podcast for this week's episode we have dr jay demarco family man spike ball champion and orthopedic surgeon here in charleston Dr. J tells us all about his recent spike ball training and his take on the opioid epidemic. He has even given a TED Talk about it, and we talk all about that and his training for that. He believes and he practices with an integrative approach to medicine, and we really get into depth with that. So we hope you enjoy it. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Healthy Charleston Podcast. Today, we have Dr. J DeMarco, orthopedic surgeon here in Charleston. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. (laughs) Well, we're pumped. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do here. I know you're a shoulder and knee guy, you said. Yeah, so I've been in Charleston basically my whole life. I was raised here um, and uh, went to Port Gaud and then went away for a little bit to uh, Washington Lee University and came back and did my medical school training at the MUSC. I got a little confused on my first residency after medical school training. I went, actually did emergency medicine training first up in uh, Winston-Salem at Wake Forest. And then somewhere in the middle of that decided, hey, all these rotations through orthopedic surgery look really cool. Putting on casts and putting screws in people's bones and replacing joints. I was like, I want that. So I went to a second residency, came back to Charleston to do that second residency. And when uh, uh, I decided I wanted to do even more training, a glutton for punishment, um, I was like in my mid-30s at that point, and my wife's like, are you ever going to get a job? And I (laughs) said, well, uh, one more I need to go train in shoulder and knee, kind of a sports medicine fellowship. And she said, well, you better do it somewhere nicer. You're going to be doing it alone. So I decided, yeah, so I decided I better do it somewhere nice. So I ended up going to Lake Tahoe, California, for almost a year and training up there, which was super cool. Came back to Charleston after that and been here 20 years now nice. um you just keep coming back i know i can't get yeah. away from it i it's love it it's a great place it's like everyone we talk to is like well i went all these cool places and then i came back <laughs> there is a draw there's definitely a draw I me mean, being from here my wife's from here yeah. we're like not high school sweethearts she went to bishop england i went to portugal which are rivals yeah right? rivals right she actually didn't like me in high school <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i looking back i would have liked myself yeah. either That's honestly I was kind of a dork and a little obnoxious. <laughs> Hopefully I've changed. I don't know. I'll have to ask her. Time will tell. So you were doing a residency and then halfway through you were like, oh, never mind. Let me do another one. 
Uh, yeah, it was a couple of things. It was really, um, it was really interesting. I had a emergency medicine attending teaching me, and he uh, decided he wanted to do orthopedics, um, oh. and so he was switching over to yeah. orthopedics. And which got me thinking, because we would talk about orthopedics, me and this guy named Monty. Uh, and so I started, every time we would rotate through as part of our training emergency medicine, because there's a lot of orthopedics and that were setting shoulders in the ER and setting bones and that kind of stuff. I would, uh, I would talk to him and, uh, and say, why are you going to orthopedics? And he'd look at me and say, I just want to have patience. I don't want to do shift work. I want to do surgery. I want to fix people. I want to do sports stuff, and I was like, "Yeah, that sounds that makes a lot of sense." And so I, um, I actually finished my emergency medicine training and uh, and got board certified in emergency wow. medicine. So uh, and then I went into orthopedics. So having two residencies is super cool for like eighth grade field trips because the teachers <laughs> want me. They're like, "Oh my gosh, you're so useful on ski trips for the church," and you know. So that's yeah. what has gotten me. A lot, of, a lot of training for so that. So two residencies, <laughs> and now you're just a really good chaperone. Right. <laughs> Super good for. chaperone. The best. I'm for hire, by the way. Okay, yeah. We'll make sure to advertise that. Definitely. <laughs> We've talked to um, a, a, some other doctors who, you know, once you go into a residency, like, it feels like you're kind of stuck, right? Like, for med school. Um, so it's surprising that you, you finished it, you got board certified, and then you're like, well, let me, let me do something else. Because at that point, you've done so many years of schooling. Yeah, the interesting thing, too, is when you're in medical school, you don't always get exposure to all the different specialties and services mm-hmm. evenly. And, and so I really didn't have much exposure to orthopedics at that point. And, and so I wanted, and you guys, you're old enough to know. Remember that show ER? Do you remember oh, back yeah. in the early For 90s? Sure. Yeah. It was super, super popular. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think that had a little bit of the, uh, you know, subconscious, sub, you know, subconscious persuasion. I think kind of like CSI, like all these people want to go into criminal investigation. Sure, like, where yeah. did that come from? And I think it's that sort of same, same idea. And uh, That's, that's like I, pre-Grey's Anatomy. I know. Right? It's like, that's yeah. how like everyone watches Post Doogie Hauser, like there's always been some, yeah, kind of show there. Yeah. So you've been here in Charleston for 20 years, and what do you do? You're a surgeon. What else? So you mean like, what do I do in addition to my What's job? A day in the life of Doctor J. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Doctor J. Usually I hit snooze a couple, two okay. or three times. Remember, I have some insight from your son. <laughs> right. So I know what makes you tick. It, you, you you probably do, and. and <laughs> Here's the thing, like I had to wake up early so many oh years of my life. Like we had to be rounding on patients in the hospital by 5 a.m. So whatever time that was to get up and make it and Jeez. get into the, because we had conference for like trauma conference, or orthopedic conference at 6 a.m. So I think what's happening now that I'm getting older is I'm like, I did my time with that, sure. and so now I kind of schedule my uh, schedule a little differently. We we still start OR early, but that's only one to two days a week, mm-hmm. and then uh, in the office just go in at around at around nine. Um, before uh, before I go to the office, not much, but afterwards a lot of lot of exciting things. Usually, super exciting. Um, I get to pl- you know help my wife plan dinner. That's Ooh. I know you guys are like on the edge of your seat. What else yeah. does he do? <laughs> I, I, um, 
I work out. I love things like I love. We talked about spike ball. Mm-hmm. So during the pandemic, one of the things that we've oh, we've we done is yeah. uh, got to play a lot of spike ball with the young guys. So I'm 52 years old, and trying to just hang with those guys has been um, exciting, <laughs> yeah. a little painful. Mm-hmm. Oh, my body, my mind is always younger than my body. Oh, so so you dive for that, that ball even though you're yeah. not supposed to. I am to. doing it. I'm diving. Yeah. I'm you're remembering. Yeah. I'm trying to. And everybody's like, dude, you're a surgeon, man. What are you doing? Like, I know, but that youthful, like, right. I know I can do this. Competitiveness comes out sometimes. So, so that's one thing I love to do. Um, getting into woodworking, which oh, really? is pretty cool. I think that's a was a pandemic thing. I always love working my hands. And the funny thing about orthopedics is it allows you... It gives you a lot of knowledge about how to build things. I know that sounds crazy, but you really, wood and bone act very, very similarly That's when you scary. put screws and plates and, and, mm-hmm. how, and the mechanics of holding thing to, things together. So there actually is a lot of crossover. We use very clean saws. We lo- use the stuff. You go to Lowe's, and that's kind of the stuff we're using in the operating room. It's just a lot cleaner. It's you know, it's been sterilized. <laughs> it so doesn't you, say Lowe's on it, and it's a little more expensive, <laughs> I'm sure. So you have two operative days. Other days, you're typically just seeing patients in clinic? Yes. Okay. So on those operating days, obviously that's um, – I've actually seen – pretty sure I've seen one of your surgeries like way back when because I've observed some surgeons back in the day so I'm really curious because I mean what the the technology they have now is probably still even from 10 years ago has really increased with just you know laparoscopic things and arthroscopic things so you know it's almost like I pictured like it was almost like a video game when you were doing that stuff because people probably picture one thing so can you kind of describe maybe like a surgery and kind of how that goes I think it'd be really cool Okay, so yes, I, I love it. This is right in the, my wheelhouse. Okay. <laughs> um, it is a lot like uh, video games, though I'm no good at the new video games. There's way too many buttons. So there's, <laughs> I agree. Uh, <laughs> I want to play Super Mario like, with A oh and B, and now yes. they've got multiple things going on. It's three hours of And now you're tour. talking to your friends on the, the headset. I can't do that. Yeah. So my 23-year-old son just two days ago said, Dad, I think I'll be, I would be a really good surgeon. And I'm like, that, this child won't clean his room, right? And so but he's like, I'm like, Christopher, why is that? He's like, because I'm good at video games. I said, well, that's part of it, but that's really not going to carry you through. I think what, you just stay on course and be a sports psychologist. It's more your style. Um, but it is. And, and when I started um, my fellowship in 2000, the whole deal was shoulder arthroscopy. So that's putting the scope in a joint, looking at it on. We didn't even have high-definition screens at that time. We didn't have good microscopic equipment to grab tissue, to put stitches through tissue, uh, lasers and ultrasonic ones. We just really didn't have all that great of equipment then. So I've, I've been able to track along over the last 20 years, particularly in the shoulder, even more than the knee. Um, I think the knee was the forefront. It was People were scoping it in the late 70s, mid 80s, right. onward. And, and so that really developed first. And the shoulder was... Yeah, we'll look in there with a scope, but we're going to open it up, right? When all said and done, we're just going to open the shoulder up. And so that was it until about 2000 for most most people, particularly on the East Coast. The West Coast was a little ahead, ahead of this, uh, that and setting the trend. Mm-hmm. But from that time onwards, it's been really neat to watch um, the instruments get to the point where we can... I'd rather deal with a gigantic like rotator cuff tear in the shoulder... 
arthroscopically than opening up the whole whole shoulder because I can get to more places. I can see better because everything's magnified on these giant HD mm-hmm. TV screens. Um, the fixation uh, and the way you you know pull sutures. So you have like this little gun that shoots stitches through, and then you have these screws that screw the stitches down to the bone. And now those are absorbed. They become bone in like a year, year and a half. So all this stuff, it's like you weren't even there. If you went back in two years after the after the cuff's completely healed over, you don't even see what's going on. In fact, uh, several weeks ago, I was back in on a shoulder that I fixed two years ago. And I had to go back in because he had another issue with his biceps tendon. And I got to look at the cuff repair. And it was, you just could not see where we had been uh and and i thought that was really cool i was like man it's like really reversing people's age in their shoulder a little bit mm-hmm. i thought that was that was cool because the goal is and i'm sure you tell me if this was a problem before and there's just a lot of scar tissue right and that made the rehab process the healing process just a lot more difficult right and the outcomes may not have been as good and now you see better outcomes right so when you open up a shoulder you are just asking for scar tissue all over the place <laughs> yeah you were just inviting scar tissue right. in, not uh, because it's just more invasive, and just suturing things back down to close everything back up leads to a bunch of scar tissue, mm-hmm. and the tissue and the uh, surgery is usually more a little more invasive with bigger tools and instruments. So decreasing scar tissue, it does decrease pain, uh, almost to the point. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish this would hurt a little more to slow people down yeah. because I feel great, doc. And you know, yeah. like it's only been two weeks. Slow down. Football for two hours. Yeah, yeah, no, right. No, so we don't want. We don't. We like a. We actually like a little bit of pain, so people are are motivated to sit still because even though we do it arthroscopically, the healing principles are the same. Mm-hmm. We still have to get tendon to heal down to the bone or ligament to heal to bone. And that, no matter how you do it, takes a certain amount of time. Um, we have ways now to speed it up. I'm, ta- you know, I'm really interested in orthobiologics, which is taking people's, quote, stem cells. And we have to be really careful about that term, stem cells, but that's a new part of what we do, taking their blood or their bone marrow and spinning it down and taking the healthy layer on top and adding that to what we're doing interoperatively to kind of speed that process up Mm -hmm. so really taking the clock and and moving it forward a a little bit with these with what god's put in our body and just using that as an an, an advantageous advantageous way sure with uh with the i'm really curious so you have seen the evolution of these surgeries how do you learn something how do you go from seeing it in person to like I'm like even my backwards camera in my car. Sometimes I go right and I shouldn't oh be going. You know what I mean? Like you're not a that, surgeon. Yeah, that confuses me, right? And so I just picture like you just got to change the way you yeah. think. You know what I mean? Like, like you just learned this technique and like you finally perfected it, and then they're like, bam, new technique. Yeah, it's like you have to always keep up with it. Yeah, it's a challenge. So you know, I'm glad that you're not a surgeon. Hearing that story about <laughs> yeah. the camera, that's good. I definitely stay, was stay not in, put on the surgeon. Yeah. surgeon. <laughs> stay in your lane. That sounds yeah. awesome. Uh, and then yeah, it's. Uh, you know, the basic uh, muscle memory that you need is really set in residency and fellowship. Like in fellowship, we did 400 surgeries in a very small amount of time. That's a lot of surgeries. So you get these basic arthroscopy skills of motor movement. So what we are doing with each advance, um, 
So you know we'll get we'll have a we'll have a, a the suture gun is a great thing that like that has been a change we used to have to grab tissue in certain ways and pass sutures through it more by hand and like uh, tying our macrame or some sort of uh, doing it looked like somebody with yeah. a knitting needle right sure. yeah yeah but with the guns it actually makes it easier so transitions like that is actually easier right you just grab the tissue got the gun it shoots it through grabs it for you and that kind of stuff here's the thing that gets a little difficult when you have major technique changes so about five to six years ago there was a major transition in the way we fixed rotator cuffs uh, and it went from uh, putting in stitches anchoring it down uh, just what would be what we call a single row technique. It's just two anchors, three anchors put together in a, in a linear row. But now we have this thing that looks like a giant, uh, what we call a, a suture bridge. So it's like these big X's on top of the rotator cuff that help compress it down to the bone. And we have way more suture. We have four, six anchors at a time to help hold all that together. Uh, all that drives healing. The compression of the cuff to the bone drives healing. It's more secure. It puts up with a lot more, hey, I'm going to go throw the football in three mm-hmm. weeks, right? So it, it's a little more idiot-proof. But learning how to do that uh, it comes from going to conferences. Um, the uh, Internet has been really helpful for this because we know, like I know the guys in the shoulder and knee world, you know, you, we see them at the conferences. We know who to follow. We know who usually is on the leading edge of the best techniques and technology and their videos of how to do that are on, you know, on YouTube or or on the internet. Yeah. So anybody, (laughs) you can learn how to fix a a rotator cuff. How how big are those sutures? Like, I just want to give people like a reference point because people probably think these huge like anchors and Mm -hmm. staples and like, you know, it's, it's really small. Do you have like a reference point? Like is it a thumbtack? Yeah. So first of all, I tell people that all the instruments that we use for the surgery are smaller than the width of a pen, like a writing pen. Or a pencil. The so the instruments we put into the portals. Mm-hmm. Um, the sutures themselves range from anywhere from one millimeter Crazy. to five millimeters. That's sort of the thickest. That's called uh, that's a tape. So a tape is a little bit wider. It's obviously a lot more. Uh, it has a lot more strength to it. Um, all the, but instruments are tiny. Everything's magnified. 10, 15 times when we're looking at it. So we'll look, we'll look at it. Sometimes I'll have observers in the operating room and they'll be looking at what I'm doing on the screen and when uh, and I'll be doing something with tissue. When I pull the actual instrument out and they get to see it with their naked eye, they're like, oh my God, that's right. tiny. That's tiny. It looks gigantic. It looks like a giant alligator on the screen. Oh, and then when you pull, pull it out, it's like the tip of the pencil. You're like, whoa, that's the same instrument. So that that's kind of the reference uh, to that. And these, uh, but the thing is, these sutures that we now use, another great advance has been the sutures that we use to now have Kevlar in them. So think bulletproof vests. Yeah. Right. So you get shot in your shoulder, your knee. You're going to be good because it'll bounce off you. <laughs> but these sutures are super strong, and that was what held us back up until 2000. Is the sutures would pop. Mm-hmm. You put them down because you can't touch them with your finger because you're working through these plastic cannulas and sliding tissue or knots down. Like a Boy Scout knot, you slide it down because you can't touch anything. You're just doing it all through the scope and right. through these cannulas. Mm-hmm. So you would get to the last stitch, 
And if it was nicked at all on that suture, it would break. And you have to do it all, uh, y'all again. And that's why people kept just, I'll just open up the, if I got to open it up anyways, because right. these sutures going to break, I might right. as well open it up. So they added Kevlar to this. It came from uh, actually fishing line. If you've ever heard of spider wire, fishing line, I guess some orthopedist was a fisherman. And he said, hey, this stuff never breaks. I get these you know, mar- marlins and these giant garfish and stuff, and right. it doesn't break the line. Why don't we use this for surgery? And, uh, and they brought that on. And that was a game changer for arthroscopy ever since Fishing. that time. Who yeah, who knew? You know, fishing has yeah. a lot of benefits. Is that like the biggest risk, especially with shoulders, that people will kind of tear that tissue? Or that like, does that tend to be the... Biggest drawback, or, yeah. so to speak. Right. right. So in the, in the early 2000s, the biggest problem was the anchors in the suture, right? That pulling out or that tear uh, or that uh, breaking the sutures or the anchors. Now it is strictly, is the tissue going to hold? Meaning tissue strength. So an older person has thinner tissue, more likely to, uh, to separate, tear mm-hmm. before it heals down to the bone. Right. And then the second uh, biggest variable is that patient going to hold back long enough uh, to let, allow the, the cuff and the tissues to heal back to the bone. It's like a dance, right? Like you want to hold back enough, but also do things to stimulate so that it becomes stronger, but they can't go over the line. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's PT. That is perfect, right? And that's what I say. I say, here's the line we're walking. You've got a very thin line. We've got to prevent scar tissue, and we've got to keep you you moving because shoulders tend to get stiff, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But we got to let this thing heal down to the bone. Well, and it all depends on the patient, right? You said older patients, so an older patient versus someone in their 40s versus someone who works out all the time. Like, it, it probably depends on the patient that's in front of you. So we get a clue from the MRIs. Okay. I, I order an MRI on every patient, usually before they do, do surgery, because I need to see. It shows me the quality of their uh, tissues. And if we're talking about rotator cuffs, which is really my specialty, uh, was is that you can see the muscle belly, the muscle bulk of the rotator cuff, and you can actually see the quality of the tissue if it's thick enough, and you and and so that will help make a decision. So sometimes I'll see really thin tissue on an older person and know that I'm going to have to bring in tissue from the bone bank, which is the, the euphemism, right? The, right, the bone bank. <laughs> so like this is right. That video. <laughs> So we always like to call it the bone bank, but it's uh, it's cadaver tissue that's been processed and sterilized and packaged, and mm-hmm. we need to know if we're going to need to add extra tissue to people's tissue to reinforce it. The bone bank. Yeah. I want to circle back because sorry, you, you don't want to. I'm just very interested in that stuff. Because you mentioned something about conferences, right? And I know that you gave a TED talk recently. Can you oh, tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Yeah, the TED Talk was was uh, so fun. We I love the people we work with. All the uh, all the other speakers were just a joy to get to get to know. But we had um, like thirteen speakers last year uh, talk about different uh, areas having to do. They were all from Charleston, or uh, oh, wow. and um, because it's uh, it's. It was more geared towards our uh, what's going on in life in Charleston and the culture of Charleston and what are people doing that are native here or at least been here and have an, uh, an influence here. So I gave a TED Talk on um, how doctors uh, were addicted to writing opioid pain prescriptions 
and how we could decrease that. And it was really fun. It took like 80 to 90 hours of time to research it and do the coaching. We had speaker coaches, which they were unbelievable. Um, and, uh, and, and they just took us through three months of preparing down wow. for a 11 minute talk. Mm-hmm. So when it first started, they, I gave, they just say, come on in, give us what you think your talk's going to be. And we do it. We did it in MESC, uh, at one of the classrooms there. And, and so about 25 minutes into my talk, <laughs> all the speaker coaches like looking at their phones or on their computers, oh, and I get done and they're like, well, that'd be great if uh, you don't want to let the other two people give their TED Talk. You just right. took three people's TED Talks. I'm like, oh, Uh-oh. a little long? And they're <laughs> like, oh my gosh, Jay, we're going to have a time with you to try and get you to shut up. So. <laughs> so yeah, what is that process like? Because when you see TED Talks, it's just like this big room filled with people. I have no idea where it is. And it's this person who's super educated and very polished about the way they talk. Right. And then they know so much about what they talk about. And I'm like, where do they record these things? Yes. How do you get recruited for a TED Talk? Like, I have no idea. So many questions. I do. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's cool. It's a really cool story. Um, I, I, it was really interesting how it happened. I honestly think it was a bit of a, a, a God thing because I don't really believe in coincidences. So I think, but... Um, on the day, I didn't even know we had a TEDx thing in Charleston. Like um, TEDx is, anytime you see the little X after the TED, means it's a more local form okay. of TED. So there's the big TED, and they control or they give the rules for all the little TEDx talks. <laughs> there's a big TED. There's a big TED that goes through every video okay. and says it can be on the web or not. And so after you give it, it has to go to them to be okay. So anyways, the day of the uh, deadline of this TED Talk back in, I guess, 2018, I get uh, one of my, my, one of my employees gets a text from her husband that says, hey, Dr. DeMarcus should give a TED Talk at the deadlines tonight at midnight. So they come to me and they're like, hey, we think you should do a TED Talk. And I'm like, okay, I've heard of TED Talks. What in the world? (laughs) What are you talking about? So we got together as a group in my office that evening and we were like, well, what is it that would be worthy of listening to? I mean, I just do orthopedic surgery. I really didn't think much of anything. I was like, this is stupid. <laughs> but uh, one of them pointed out that I do pain management differently. Uh, and some of that is from my emergency medicine training because a lot of that training was in pain management, which is the majority of what you see in the ER. So I think it's just a natural, you know, when you do things and might, other people might think it's different or special and you're just like, I don't even see it. That's just the way I do things. I think we can I think, understand that. I think it was sort of like that, right? And, yeah. and so they're like, no, no, you do, you do pain management differently, especially around surgery and, and all these things that you do. And I said, all right. And so I said, we got to have to come up with a, a, a catchy title because otherwise, there's no chance. You gotta have the catchy title, of course. right? And so that was the one why doctors are addicted to writing opioid pain medication prescriptions. So that was what I went home and spent four hours coming up with what the talk should be and why and all that. And at 11:30 that night, I submitted it, and I'm like, "All right, well, if this is meant to be. It'll happen." Sure. I didn't even think about it. Really, I sent it in. Didn't even think about it. About a month later. I get an email and they're like, hey, yeah, um, 
we're gonna we saw your TED stuff and we want to go ahead and interview you. And I'm like, oh, what? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I did right. send that in, right? Yeah. So then they did, we did like a two hour over the phone interview with a couple of the TED. Um, uh, what do you call it? The staff that decides, and I don't know if it's a Recruiters, mission, recu- yes. whatever they call those people. Yeah. They're super nice. And then they're like, okay, great. And then I went another month and I kind of forgot about it again, right? Yeah. I get another email. Hey, we'd like to meet with you in person. So then I meet with two different people because they don't want the same people interviewing you. They want others. So two other people. So now probably 10 people have looked at between the application and talked to me and now another two people. Um, and then I met with them and they're like, we'll give you a call if we decide to use you. And then somewhere in December, I get another email. They're like, hey, congrats. First of all, I said, wow. congratulations, yeah. Steve. So it had the wrong name on it, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like, congratulations, Steve. Yeah. You've been chosen for this. And so I'm thinking, oh God, is this, really is this me? Did they send it to Steve. the wrong person? Or Did Steve, Steve have a really good yeah. one? So I ended up having to call. And they're like, no, no, we're sorry. We put the wrong name on there. And After we were chosen. Right. <laughs> the wrong name on it. They had met you millions of times. Put you through this grueling interview process. And then they called you Steve. It's because Steve had the best talk, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Got, so Steve did exist. Steve did have a okay. talk. He talked about... Uh, t- treatment of cancer. So yeah, we'll give Steve. Steve had a good. Did that job. happen at MUSC? Because I feel like I remember people talking about TEDx is coming to Charleston. Like you could sit in on the talk. I don't know, where did it? So happen? they did it at the Charleston Music Hall. Okay. On John Street, mm-hmm. and uh, but all our practices were at MUSC. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because one of like the speaker sit-in. coaches is a professor there and has access. He has all the keys. Oh. You know, he's got a keychain like thirty-five keys on it, and so he nice. let us in. Yeah. But then after you get chosen, then it's like, oh it's like my gosh, Idol. it's a it's a waterfall. You're just like drunk, drinking from the fire hydrant. So they get you in, and then they do videos and pictures and. Spend a day doing doing that kind of stuff, and then you've got to train. So every once to twice a week, we would meet with speaker coaches. Wow! It was really cool. It'd be all of us, mm-hmm. uh, at least once a week. Uh, the speakers would come in, and we spend an hour plus to two hours, and going over the talks. And they were the speaker coaches. If y'all are listening right now, super sweet in real in person, but they were they were tough. Yeah. You know, they would look at you and be like, no. That's not happening. Run it again. That had, was horrible. Had you done speaking before this? Because I mean, like, you can present at conferences or you yeah. can be in front, right? Like there's some version of that. But had you already done some speaking? Or is this- uh, yeah, you know, um, I, I speak some, but I, I never considered myself particularly, you know, anything about it. Just I have to speak for depositions and uh, as an expert witness in law and teaching stuff. And I've got a guys group that we do uh, retreats for that I yeah, you know, they talk mm-hmm. at Hannah's like, yeah, she's yawning right now. Right? That's what I mean. <laughs> like, cut to the heart, right? So that's basically how I felt about yeah. my, my yeah. speaking most of the time. I'm you had experience kidding. with it, though, enough to... This wasn't your bit. first dip. You no, know? it wasn't, but it was just enough to, to make it where it hurt for people to tell you how bad it was yeah, in a loving way, right? Time. Yeah. Um, so we, but they just, they would, I mean, they've done this a bunch, right? They've done this six, seven, eight years in a row. And uh, so they know what TED Talks should 
be yeah. like they have that certain cadence you can really right. tell when they yep. have TED Talks like boom oh yeah like there's this it's yeah. very like, branded and they want you know you need the hook to get people in so the very first words out of your uh, repeat things your, three times I've read be, the kind of framework for it should be something that are people if they're on their phone there should be like oh stick their head whether yeah. there's interesting things whether you do with a statistic or you do it with uh, starting in the middle of a story is really interesting mm-hmm. Like, there I was on the bedside in the emergency department, yeah. and blood was gushing everywhere. You know, the, that that'll give some, Tell me that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Tell me that story. No, I, my, my, the hook on, uh, that I did was I went out there with a prescription pad and said, you know, in my hand I have the power to heal or the power to harm. And with this prescription pad, I've harmed many patients without knowing it. So I want to watch this. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can access yeah. it. Oh, I, okay. I, I've already heard some of this before, but I think it would be really powerful. A, I'd like to know what your protocol is and maybe why it's different. You know, And then maybe you can shine some light. Because we've talked about it some on the podcast before with some of the other docs as far as opioid use and, and how that could potentially be harmful. But if you could shed some light on that, I'd... Yeah, I don't know exactly. It's such a big subject. I mean, I'm sure it's uh, most of your listeners been already well determined. Hey, there's an opioid epidemic. Yeah. It's an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do think we are turning the tide. The numbers show that we are actually turning the tide. Um, and so, what we have been doing is working. Is working. And everybody's got a piece of the puzzle, right? You know, the therapists help because you're decreasing pain. In interacting with your patients um, and uh, able to show them mindfulness and also ways to get more motion and which ultimately decreases pain and more strength. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know the doctors our part is to decrease the pain and uh, around our procedures particularly that's what my TED talk was on. I mean we do it throughout whatever whether they have a procedure or not. We want to decrease people's pain. There's so many parts of this. I will. The medical part is one part. I ultimately don't think the medical part is as important as the other parts, which are a little bit more uh, mental, mindful, emotional, spiritual, those parts. But I will be happy to tell you what we do medically with, with our practice. So if you are having a procedure in our practice... The first thing is, and let's say you're going to have rotator cuff surgery. The first thing is, in my office, we try to set you up for success, okay? We know that you as a patient are nervous. We know that you are scared. You don't know exactly what you are getting into. Most people are scared about the pain after surgery. Is it going to be overwhelming? What am I going to do with it? So when we set people up for surgery... We uh, we talk to him about pain. We say, look, we're doing the, the newest things that we have available for pain. And I say, the majority of my patients after surgery are not are using less than five pain pills. Okay? So when a patient hears that, they get the sense that this is probably not going to be overwhelming. And you pain. set expectations, yeah. I think, really, right. really, from my end. But yeah, right. sorry, I don't want to... And I say... My patients that are set on not using narcotics are almost always successful not using narcotics because of what else we do. As opposed to getting an entire, sorry, I get a little fired up. As opposed to getting an entire, like, I've seen it before. It's like I have this whole bottle, 
and I think I'm supposed to use this right. exact exactly. bottle. Because I'm going to be in so much pain, otherwise why would they give me this whole bottle? Yeah. Right. And even if I'm not in pain, I guess I should use it to stay ahead of the game, pain, yeah. which is one of my favorite things to talk about. But, okay, sorry. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, so we used to write not basically anywhere from 60 to 90 pills of oxycodone or Percocet or hydrocodone. Those are all the standard narcotics. After surgery whether it was arthroscopy, knee surgery, shoulder surgery, or joint replacements. You'd get somewhere between 60 and 90. That was the standard as we were taught through residency and fellowship. Written out, no problem, no questions. We have now, what I do in our practice is we are hardly ever writing for more than 12. So in the last, you know, five or six, seven years, we have really, really made huge breakthroughs in that. But you can't just cut the pill numbers, right? That's not fair to patients. Like, well, what am I to do? Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing we do in the office, we give people a handout that says, hey, this is what you're to, what's going to be given to you after afterwards, and this is how we want you to use it. You're going to be given around-the-clock Tylenol, which is crazy how effective that is to be on, you know, 1,000 milligrams every eight hours. You're going to be on around-the-clock ibuprofen or leave. And so that conjunction of Tylenol and anti-inflammatory, that's two separate pain pathways. Tylenol actually is, acts like a narcotic in that it's a more central acting brain spinal cord. Mm-hmm. It acts there. The anti-inflammatories are more working at where you had the surgery, the peripheral area where you had the surgery. So that's been really helpful. Then um, before surgery you get a nerve block. So whatever we're operating on is getting numb uh, for 12 to 18 hours. So here's the studies show that if your body never knows you're having surgery on a certain place because your brain never gets impulses of pain from somebody from your shoulder, your brain never can feel it, then you're going to use less pain pills afterwards. Just your brain not even know it had surgery on it. Not even knowing that it was like a threat. Right. Not even yeah. So the crazy thing is under general anesthesia with no nerve block, your brain still feels pain. It knows exactly what's going on. It knows. It's cut. Yes. Yeah. And so that's why you have to have deep general anesthesia to keep you from responding, to keep your blood pressure from going up, to keep your heart rate from going up. And so it's just numbing the brain, but the brain is recording this. It's memorizing mm-hmm. this. It's no, somebody's cut into my, at some level in the mm-hmm. brain, it knows this. So if you do a nerve block, it never gets any of those impulses. So that really, really helps. Just doing that one thing wow, helps really decrease cool. pain. I feel like we could get so in a pain science. Yeah, that. just like, oh, maybe there's going to have to be a different one just <laughs> on that. that. Just, it just shows a lot. Yeah. So that's the that's the first thing um, that we do once people are in the waiting room or the holding area for the their surgery. The um, second thing we do is after surgery, we put a little tiny catheter. It's smaller than an IV catheter around where we do surgery. So it goes through the skin. It curls around almost like a little soaker hose, and it's got these tiny little holes in it that drip allow you to drip numbing medicine in there. And we put about three days worth of numbing medicine in a ball that's hooked to your sling. And it will, it's an, uh, it's an pain pump. This, uh, and that will drip numbing medicine for three days, two and a half to three days. So when your nerve block begins to wear off, you're still getting numbing medicine in there to decrease. 
So one of the studies that we actually did at uh, MESC is what happens after a nerve block wears off? Well, do you, you know what happens when your dental bl- mm. block wears off from your teeth, right? It goes from, blah, blah, I can't talk, right, to an upshot of pain. And there's this mm. sort of hypersensitivity overshoot of pain. And we really don't want that. Because that's when people start yeah. taking narcotics. Yep. Because they're having this extra, and so that's where the pain pump really helps. The other thing we do is we put a cooling machine on whatever body part we're operating on, and this is like third or fourth generation uh, cooling. It doesn't use ice; it's an air conditioning unit. You guys have probably seen it. It's on a rolling cart, and it will just computer controlled. So it will once it's set at like forty-seven degrees, it just circulates forty-seven degree water around your shoulder. And it will do that for hours at a time. So you can fall asleep and the ice pack no longer melts in the middle of your sleep, gets you yes. wet, or gets warm again. Yeah. You're cooling the whole time you're asleep. Mm-hmm. So with the nerve block, the pain pump, the cooling machine, around-the-clock Tylenol, around-the-clock ibuprofen, and to sleep, we uh, can give you a gabapentin, which actually is an anti-seizure medication, but it's a nerve-stabilizing medication, so it helps with nerve pain or pain in the body, or Benadryl. So we're, giving, we're also offering people things to help them sleep if they can't sleep. If you break through all of those modalities and medications, then there'll be uh, an oxycodone uh, available to you, oh, and you can see. Available before that, right? You'll have the prescription. Yeah. We don't. We send it home, and you can get it filled if you want to. But then you can take that at that point. Um, and so that's why people can get through. And the most pain in surgery is the first three days. If you can get through the first three days, you're really. Yeah. And you are not on a narcotic. You're not going to probably start on one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so all this is get you through this first most painful 72 hours. And um, yeah, so most people use less than five pills. Yes. And that is just you doing that? Are there other, like, I'm really curious. You're the only person. Yeah, I mean, not to, I don't, you know. I don't know the answer purpose. to that. I, I feel. It's not a standard protocol anyway. It anywhere. feels kind of silly because it seems so simple. And I'm like, oh, everybody's got to be doing that, right? Mm-hmm. There's information about it. There's a TED Talk on it, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then. But, you know, and it makes com- it's common sense and it goes along with all the science about how your brain interprets pain and breaking pain pathways so your brain doesn't get yeah. these signals. Mm-hmm. How many people understand that, though? So even us, like me as a, as a health professional, physical therapist, we didn't really get a lot of pain we science. I learned pain science now on my own, like the idea of just harm and pain not, not exactly matching up was just something that was new to me that I figured out very late in life was just you know i wonder if there needs to be more education on that this whole biopsychosocial model which i guess is still fairly new anyway or maybe it's not fairly new but it's now becoming more evidence at least in the rehab circles people yeah. are talking about it more same thing the common sense logical like right. less harm to the patient it right. just makes sense right and so you're like everyone's doing this right and then you look around and you're the only one doing it yeah i think people that don't keep up with continuing education that aren't as curious that are just like this is the way i do it this is i don't want to think too much about it i think that's where people get into trouble whether they just get complacent with what what's going on and 
you know, obviously some people just love to keep pushing the envelope and uh, I want to keep pushing the envelope. I tell people, I want to be, tre- I want to treat you the way I would want to be treated. Mm-hmm. Then that's really my whole philosophy for doing all this is if there's the latest, greatest pain management tool out there, I want to be using it because I would want somebody to do that with me. Instead yeah. of just being like, hey, here are all these pills. You're going to be in a lot of pain. You're yeah. going to need to take them. Yeah. Yeah. That's the easier route. I mean, that's, that's the hard part. What you just said, there's a lot of steps. There's a lot of patient education involved. A there's a lot of, you know, it may or may not be cheaper, but it, yeah, it just takes a, it's a bigger process, which is more difficult. More education of your staff, like just so many things that need to happen. Oh, and, you know, yeah, uh, kind of using that thought because it just reminded me, I had to re-educate the entire OR staff where I work, the ambulatory OR staff, because they were giving pain pills to stay in front of the pain. You had mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm. This sort of staying ahead of the pain thing was is so entrenched in the medical treatment of uh, it was. I had to go and say, please, with my patients, we don't want. We I think we can get them through with minimal narcotics. So that retraining, even at the, I mean, these people deal with it every day, right? That's mm-hmm. their business. Uh, and and us and the pain and the uh, anesthesiologists also had to come because we had some anesthesiologists wanted saying use narcotics right when the pain block begins to wear off and we had to re-educate and get on the same wavelength. But everyone's there's no pushback on that though. I mean, people at least at the anesthesia level, nursing level, super super, they just didn't know, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, right. There's no pushback. They're like, yeah, we get what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, and, most people don't have malintent. It's just the way that things are done, the way they've always been yeah, done, what you've been yes. taught. I mean, I thought if you stayed ahead of the pain, like when I got my wisdom yeah. teeth surgery, that's what we did. Yeah. So can you explain that, like what, why that isn't the case? Well, I think we are staying ahead of the pain in a different yeah. way, right? I think the idea is is similar, right? You you do want to try to decrease any pain signals to the brain before they hit a crescendo, but we're doing it in a non-narcotic way. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that the thought process is, oh, we don't, that's crazy. You should let pain build up. It's just, a, hey, we're doing it without narcotics. And it just and, shouldn't be the primary line of defense. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. so many other options. Right. So and like we that. just want people to get off of autopilot because, mm-hmm. you know, when you're doing it, you're nursing, you've been doing it for 15 years. It's just autopilot, mm-hmm. right? I've been doing that. So to just stop and be like, oh, I want to do this a little differently. And I want to circle around to something else you said. You know, there's a, there is a part of this is, is relationship. That's a big part of it. Um, and doing, and in my initial office thing, meeting with people, I want to know that they have a support system afterwards because the one of the biggest risk for addiction and getting hooked to these pain pills is isolation and not having a support. Mm -hmm. So one of my big pushes when I talk about this is this not just the medical stuff, but it is about community. And my go-to, you'll appreciate this, my go-to for community for a lot of people is PT. Like I want, because if they don't have a good support system here, if they're kind of then I then I utilize the PTs to be their support system to be, you know, helping them get better without sending them into too much pain, encouraging not to use narcotics mm-hmm. unless absolutely necessary, and giving them a place where they can vent their frustrations to somebody. So you know, PTs are super super important to me, and um, and I think that that relationship. And letting people know, hey, in my office is a safe space. If you have a problem with narcotics, 
tell me, I just had a guy come in this week um, who was on narcotics for almost 10 years. Mm-hmm. And we did a shoulder replacement on him. And the thing was, he told me, he's like, Doc, I just have a problem with narcotics. And he felt safe enough to tell me that. And we do encourage people to tell us that because it helps us manage them. And he wanted, he's like, I think after this shoulder replacement, I really want to decrease my narcotics. And so we began in the hospital, we began to start to decrease that and replace it with non-narcotic stuff and, and get him on a, on a schedule where his narcotics were more spaced out. Well, he's now a couple of years out from that shoulder replacement, and he has been off narcotics since that shoulder replacement. Once wow. he weaned off of them, he never went back. He's like, that shoulder really, that replacement was keeping the pain at a level where I needed narcotics. So you you, know, you see somebody like that and you feel really, it made me feel really good about what we're trying to pursue. Yeah. I mean, it's still a big part of the podcast and the big reason we have a lot of people like yourself in here is I still think the cornerstone of we'll call it good medicine. It's just, is that part. It's the community part. It's the personal part. You know, the medical stuff aside, you can be good at the medical stuff, but I feel like that's still that missing kind of piece that we're, we're just not focusing on. A lot of people just aren't focusing on that yeah. right now. It's just like, you know, the power of just sitting down, educating your patient and saying, Hey, let's form a relationship. Let's come up with a plan together. And that's just, that's what it's about. Yeah. Man. I mean, in order to treat your patient's best physically and mentally like you need to know what they've gone through their experience how like what they do day to day and and when you just turn around shake their hand write them a script and put them in the OR you don't ever get that it's just another check in the box like it's just another surgery going through it's not oh well my patient you know whatever name like the guy you just talked about it sounds like you had a relationship with him and and when he was successful that was like an awesome moment for you and that's what we want to get back to is those relationships exactly exactly Everyone has a story to tell, right? Everybody wants to tell their story. And I think one of the things that underlines a bunch of our, all of our behaviors and addictions and brokenness is that we are unable to tell our story to somebody who cares, mm-hmm. right? And to be able to be a safe space where, where we're just listening to people's stories and say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm broken, you're broken, I'm, I'm no judgment here, and we'll work through this because judgment's not going to help people get better. But a listening ear will, understanding their story. And I think people, honestly, if people just get stuck not being able to tell their story, and there's often a part of their story that relates to somebody else's story affecting their story. What I mean by that is, Part of their people's brokenness when their story and addiction is often, I had a parent affect my story, right? We all have mm-hmm. childhood things and family origin issues. And they've never gone back and thought, oh my gosh, my parents' stories, I've never reinterpreted them. Interpreted them with, was that, I heard it when I was six. Maybe I should look back and say, well, they told me I was good for nothing, is that true? Is they still, uh, you know, is that the right interpretation now that I'm 35? Yeah, it's crazy the things that, that you tell yourself in your own narrative. And, like, it takes a lot to get that out of the patient, right? You're not just going to sit down with them the first time and say, nope. hey, I see this on your MRI. Let me give you a shoulder replacement. Right. And they're, like, begging for something else. Yes. yes. 
So there are patients right now in my practice that I have seen maybe once or twice, and I know we're going to have more important conversations in the future because they're hurting in different ways. It's not just they're coming in wanting narcotics or coming in with depression. You know, there's things, but it's you, you just have to build that relationship before you go there. But to have some of those tough questions with them eventually and the challenges that go along with it, so that's, you know, that's the part I love about what, what I do. And so yeah. that's amazing. It's a big reason that we've positioned our practice and the way it has is just because I'd like to be able to dig into those things with people. It's yeah. just the bottom line. Cause I think spending me being able to spend 30 to 40 minutes, literally as Hannah was saying, what have you gone through? What are your goals going forward? What are you going through now? Let's just sit down and talk about it and not feel rushed. I think is, is huge yeah. in some ways more important than, what exercise I choose mm-hmm. or what modalities or ch- I choose or their plan of care or your yeah. diet. I mean, of course that stuff's important, but the human element, I think it's just, it's just been a game changer as far as I've been able to practice and the relationships that we've been able to build and yeah. the outcomes for sure. You know, I'm sure there's people that would disagree with this. I just think I've been better since we've been able to. And it's like, you know, yeah. do in this PT stuff. school yeah. and on rotations, you're taught, like, you know, get a full history, but like, you get through it. Like, you have 10 minutes, and then the it's subjective like, was like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, my subjective is like, long now. The subjective is like my <laughs> yeah. favorite part. Yeah. It's like when you yeah, get, they tell you everything about their diet, sleep, exercise, like their whole history. If you don't get that part, like you don't you don't get a vital piece of, mm-hmm. of their information. It's like a huge piece of the puzzle. Everyone's like, what hurts? What does it say? I'll fix it. That's not. Yeah. That's not what healthcare is, and I think that we are moving towards a more integrated approach, holistic approach, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, and we are too. Even in orthopedics, at least our practice is uh, maybe a little bit more holistic than than most. But that's how, that's how I want it. That's what I bring to the table. That might be a little bit different, mm-hmm. without even knowing I'm bringing to the table. It's just mm-hmm. who I am and and what we do. Yeah, so that's super, yeah, super cool. All right, I think it's time for our rapid fire. Okay, I have so many more things I could dig into. But okay, stop. well. No, no, we're good, we're good. No, we <laughs> could go on, I mean, it's been this a while. This happens every time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you yeah. ready? Rapid fire. Okay. Okay. Yes. Favorite type of exercise? Oh my gosh, it's the uh, deadlift with trap with a trap, trap bar. bar. Like so feels so. Did we just become best friends? Oh my god! <laughs> it's just perfect for it's like the perfect positioning. Uh, You're not having the bar on your back. We have a trap bar in there, by the way. We have a doctor that deadlifts, so yeah. I think that's a win. Yeah. Favorite restaurant in Charleston? Burton's. It serves healthy food. My my poor family has so many dietary issues. Really? Yeah, gluten free, dairy free, soy yeah. free. So Burton's is the place. Love it. What time do you set your alarm? To wake up in the morning. Uh, or most in of the, the time. afternoon, whenever you wake up. <laughs> <laughs> it really does depend on what yeah. day. It's six o'clock on Thursdays, but every other day it's seven thirty. What book are you reading right now? I'm reading two. Okay. Um, changes change that sticks. Mm-hmm. is one of them. I can't tell you it's by, but it's a super great book. And the other one is Love Does. Oh, by I read Bob that. Bell. Yes, mm-hmm. it's sweet. So I have one book upstairs and one book downstairs, depending where I am. <laughs> you wouldn't want to have am to carry it. Am I a multitasker or whatever? Like, yeah. When I'm in this room, I read <laughs> this book. And favorite Netflix TV show? 
<laughs> I'm not sure my wife's going to really want to, for this to get out. <laughs> what? Everyone has a Netflix. Oh my gosh, uh, I might have to. I might have to say another one. No, we we're, right. we're watching Shit's Creek. Oh my gosh, I love that show. It's so okay, good. Okay. And that's like a worldwide renowned show at this point. Yeah. Gone crazy. We loved. It It was show. like my brother being like, "Oh, look at this show," and then we watched it all. Who, David? Like I'd say it all the time. David. Oh, David. I, Alexis. I know. It's like a family. It's so funny because it's like the weirdest family and they have all these things they're going through, but then so many families watch it together. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they had like that wrap up show at the end. I don't know if Wait, you watched it. Wait, no, no, that. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, sorry. Okay. Well, I don't know. No, there's another, the there's season. another season somewhere out season there on five. pop video that we haven't, or that six. you have to buy. You can buy it, but I, I don't know. We should buy it and I'll share that. I have it on YouTube awesome. TV. I got all the way to the end. Wait, all the way to the end? Yeah. On YouTube? What? YouTube TV. Yeah. What? YouTube TV. All right. YouTube TV, yeah. Might be worth it. All right. Well, we're going to go watch that now. <laughs> I guess we're done almost. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Yeah. No more quick fire. have you on. I also just want to add that um, right before we did this podcast, I learned that I lived with Dr. J's brother in California. Um, yeah. Which was a really funny connection because I shared a bathroom with his nephew for a couple months. <laughs> so small world. So leave with that image in your. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah, me and like three teenagers. It just boys. tells you how brave Hannah is. Actually, yeah, right. to, oh my gosh, I've been able to do that. God no, bless very you. grateful. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. See you. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on the Healthy Charleston Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, we would love for you to head over to Instagram, search Healthy Charleston, one word, like, follow, comment on today's episode. If you have any questions, comments, if you have possible guests that you want us to bring on, if you have any topics you want us to discuss, reach out there, send us a direct message. We would love some feedback. Also, if you get any extra time, head over to iTunes, give us a rating. Again, put comments there. We love your feedback. Have a phenomenal.